Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give better help a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 158, The Legend Slayer. Asking for listener questions at the end of each century has been an invaluable experience, and for any feedback I receive, I always assume that there are hundreds of silent listeners who've wondered the same thing. When we reached the end of Basil II's monumental reign, one listener commented that the story was a bit of a letdown. Where was the drama? Where was the sweeping praise of Basil the Bulgar Slayer, greatest of all Byzantine emperors? Soon after, two other listeners asked, why is it that we know so little about his reign? Remember that once the civil wars were over, We were left in the dark about large sections of the Bulgarian War, and we know almost nothing about life in Constantinople. It's these, and a few other questions, that I'd like to discuss today. I don't want to repeat myself too much, but the popular image of Basil was formed by historians of the 19th and early 20th century. They put Basil's decades-long war in Bulgaria, together with the mass blindings and collapse of the kingdom, and hey presto. Basil was a man driven by vengeance who would not rest until the Bulgarian state had been annexed. It's true that Basil was a driven man, and he did blind enemies who broke their word, but there is little evidence that it was a personal matter. In fact, Basil's behaviour is very similar to a man who is seldom remembered, John Corcuas. As you are now hopefully recalling, John was the senior general appointed to take charge of the Eastern Front by Romanus Lecabinos. Back at the beginning of the century we've just covered, Romanus unexpectedly found himself on the throne. He needed to circumvent the Phocas family, who were a dangerous rival for power. So he turned to the House 
of Corcuas. John would spend the next 20 years constantly on campaign, largely targeting Melitene and Theodosiopolis. Those were the two last major Arab outposts in Armenia. The mountainous landscape made it impossible to deliver a knockout blow. The Romans had to carry all their supplies with them, and if the weather was bad or the Arabs ambushed them, a whole year's campaigning would go up the spout. So Corcuas spent 20 years relentlessly banging on the door, looking for a weakness to exploit. That is, of course, exactly the same scenario which greeted Basil in Bulgaria, an enemy capable of raiding Roman land who needed to be defeated or brought into a cooperative treaty, uh, but one whose mountainous, and in this case forested, landscape made a decisive victory very hard to achieve. The reason we're fairly confident that the Basil Vendetta story isn't true is the Emperor's seeming willingness to conclude a peace treaty with his enemy. And this, too, was a tactic employed by Corcuas. Back then, John negotiated with both Theodosiopolis and Melitene over their status as centres of jihad. During one period, Arab soldiers from Melitene were forced to parade through Constantinople, dragging Muslim prisoners behind them, because of their treaty with Byzantium. Basil, too, would probably have been happy to have Christian Bulgaria as an ally, if he'd had some measure of control over them. By the time Melitene agreed to become a protectorate, it was extremely vulnerable to Roman assault. Whereas the Bulgarians, despite many defeats and incursions, were decentralised enough to never feel so threatened, at least until the very end. These tactics were traditional Roman methods of dominating and pacifying their neighbours, and John and Basil deserve immense credit for devoting their working lives to the achievement of a stable border. For centuries before them, the Byzantines had been unable to apply such consistent pressure. All of which makes Basil a great emperor who achieved great things, no doubt. I suspect what puts the emperor in the shade and Corcuas into obscurity is the far more spectacular-sounding victories of Nicephorus Phocas and John Zimisces. What we need to remember, though, is that lots of their campaigning was done on flat, arable land. Cilicia, Syria, and Crete all have much nicer climates. With harvestable food lying around, it's much easier to conquer swiftly across that kind of terrain. Their famous victories would not have been possible without Corcuas, nor would they have been sustained without Basil. It is possible that the Bulgarian story would be more dramatic if we had better sources, but I suspect it wouldn't sound so different. Attritional warfare will always be a duller tale than the storming of a city. But if I've failed to give Basil his due, then let me add that the Emperor's achievements are all the more impressive because he grew up in the palace. The magnate generals had the advantage of a rougher childhood to prepare them for the rigours of a life on campaign, whereas Basil had to adapt from a soft upbringing to transform into the steely adult he became. 
It's also worth saying that Basil did survive a period of pretty dramatic narrative. He went toe-to-toe with Bardas Focus in a contest that could have cost him everything. But once he'd survived that, he wisely decided to take no similar risk ever again. The result? He reigned longer than any other emperor, and died in bed. Less dramatic, certainly, but for a Byzantine ruler, deeply impressive. But why the lack of sources? Listener St. says, The longest reigning emperor in Roman history, and we know nothing about his personality or his campaigns. Wasn't the empire rich and prosperous at this point? Shouldn't that equate with more histories being written? While listener J adds, It seems like we had better sources when the empire was in trouble. It seems counterintuitive. Good questions, but I'm afraid the Byzantine book market did not function like it does today. Most histories were not written to be bestsellers. The effort it took to copy a whole book out was considerable, and the size of the potential audience was relatively small. Given those limitations, most histories were written for the purpose of advancing one's career. An aspiring bureaucrat or clergyman could win favour with those higher up by providing them with a flattering history. Flattering in the sense that it presented the church or the regime or someone's ancestors in a favourable light. Or the work simply demonstrated the credentials of the writer, not just their erudition and work ethic, but their ability to do the right thing to toe the party line, to massage facts into a pleasing and appropriate order. The prosperity of the empire, therefore, doesn't necessarily make any difference to the number of histories written. It can, though, affect the number of books which are copied. It is by the process of copying and dissemination that books survived and reached the modern world. This is a process I hope to produce an episode on some day, but as you can imagine, lots of luck is involved with which ancient texts survived and which didn't. It is rare that we get a Procopius, someone who lived through an era and wrote such a definitive history that no one feels the need to summarise it. In many cases, summaries of many different sources is what survives. The Chronicle of Theophanes, for example, cobbled together the work of many earlier historians. Their nuances and digressions ironed out to fit the iconophile world in which he lived. This is partly the issue with Basil II. As you know, our main source for the Bulgarian War and Constantinople is the Chronicle of John Skylitzes. John, writing 60 years after Basil's death, felt the need to summarise. He is writing a much longer history of Byzantium. He doesn't feel that time is well spent in recounting every year of Basil's war, so he edits to suit the pace of his own work. What that means in practice is that an earlier history was summarised 
and then superseded by John's Chronicle. Over time, when people came to read about this period of history, they found John's summary perfectly adequate. The original history was thus less read, less copied, and eventually lost. As best we can tell, this earlier work was a history by Theodore, the Bishop of Sebastea. Though doubtless trained and educated in Constantinople, Sebastea is one of the eastern themes, not far from Cappadocia. Assuming that Theodore wrote shortly after Basil's death, it's likely that his information came from his eastern congregants, many of whom had spent years serving in the empire's armies in Bulgaria. Hence why we know the names and exploits of many of Basil's officers and the parts they played in the failed rebellion of Nicephorus Phocus and Nicephorus Xiphias. But Theodore was probably not present in Constantinople for much of Basil's reign, denying him both knowledge of the capital itself and of the emperor's personality. So even when we can dig backwards and discover who our lost sources are, we still get no closer to the mysteries surrounding Basil. Across our next era, the number of sources emanating from the capital will increase dramatically. You already know a bit about this because of the work of Michael Pselos, the arch-bureaucrat and palace creature who knew and worked for everyone. So why the silence from the capital during Basil's reign? Or more specifically, and this is probably the key, why the silence after the civil wars? As you know, during the time that Scleros and Phocas were battling it out with Basil, we had a pretty full picture of events. But it is not their deaths that end the capital's output, it is the death of Basil Le Capinos. The eunuch was an extremely influential man. He was known as a patron of the arts and may well have had a hand in the historical projects that took place under Constantine VII. You may remember that the Porfiroyenitos was the man who commissioned several histories to whitewash the image of his grandfather, Basil I. Lots of other projects were initiated during that time. The Suda, for example, was the closest thing the Byzantines had to an encyclopedia. It gathered much information from the ancient world in its pages, and it took decades to complete. Commissioned by Constantine, it wasn't finished until Basil's reign. It seems likely that with the fall of Le Capinos, those who had been working on things on his behalf quietly withdrew from the firing line. Remember that I talked about Basil's struggles to get the empire's power brokers to come before him to have their rights confirmed. For many years, the young Vasilevs was fobbed off with documents showing his own signature, which he'd only signed at his uncle's direction. The web of patronage which Le Capinos had woven included the kind of ambitious men of letters who would most likely have penned the next history books. Once Basil was in power, they were put on warning not to expect the same favours they'd received before. We actually know about one of these men. 
He was a poet and supporter of the Focas family, known to us as John Geometres, or Geometres. I'm out of touch with my pronunciation coach. One of his poems called on Nicephorus to rise from the grave to fight the Bulgarians early on in Basil's reign. The not-so-subtle subtext was that Phocas would never have been ambushed at Trajan's gate. As you can imagine, soon afterwards Basil's associates told John that his services would no longer be needed at court. It is in this atmosphere that we assume potential historical authors were stymied. Plenty was still written in other fields, some of it commissioned by the emperor himself, but it seems that Basil did not encourage encomiums or panegyrics beyond what was needed for imperial propaganda. The fact that the Vasilevs was so often absent from the capital can't have helped. And I think there's just an element of bad luck involved. Leo the Deacon, the author of most of Phocas and Zimisces' battle scenes, is a classic example of how history gets written. Clearly wanting to rise above the position of deacon, he wrote a history of the empire since Constantine VII. He published his first edition to gain notoriety early in Basil's reign, and it seems to have worked, as a Leo, with a very similar writing style, becomes a bishop not long after publication. He intended to write more and cover Basil's wars, but his duties as bishop kept him busy, and then he died, aged about 50, preventing him from continuing his work. Anyone considering a continuation of his history would then have had the very real obstacle of Basil's long reign in their way. Leo seems to have died just before the turn of the millennium. Writing while an emperor was alive was a difficult business, and given the inconclusiveness of the Bulgarian wars, it would have been difficult to know how to frame such a work until it was over. Prospective historians, therefore, had to wait 20 or 30 years before they could safely sum up Basil's reign, by which time most of them had moved on to another project. Hopefully you now have a better idea of the bad luck that plagues us in finding better written sources for Basil's reign. And I'm afraid an absence of sources will be a theme throughout our end-of-the-century series. There are elements of archaeology, for example, that we know little about because Byzantine ruins are not of great interest to the Turkish state. However, I'm constantly surprised and delighted with how historians find ways around these issues to discover interesting facts. Listener Jay asks a question that I'm pleased to say falls into this category. I've noticed that we run across the name Bardas a lot, but never an Emperor Bardas. Luck of the draw, I assume. But it got me thinking. What were the Christian names of the average people in the empire? Were there lots of Johns, Constantines and Michaels, like the emperors? Or were the average Joes given different names? 
I see that the list of patriarchs reflects a lot more Latin names, like Polyuctus and Euthymius. There are several things to talk about here. The name Bardas was a popular Armenian name. It can be pronounced with a V, so in some texts you see Vardas, and the similar Bardanes or Vardan. Uh, you may remember an emperor from just before the siege of 717 who I called Vardan the Armenian. Uh, that BV split is between English and Greek, hence Basileus as you might see it on the page uh, in England or America would sound more like Vasilefs in Greek. And yes, it's definitely fortune which has determined the absence of an emperor Bardas from the imperial roles. Both Phocas and Skleros could have risen to the throne. And you may remember that Basil I had a powerful rival for the throne in the emperor Michael's uncle, Bardas. A lot of the eastern magnates gave their sons that name because of their connections or even origins in Armenia. As for the patriarchs, listener H jumped in to point out that Polyuctus and Euthymius are actually Greek names, uh, but that patriarchs often took the name of a saint upon their accession a bit like Vardan the Armenian being renamed Philippicus when he became emperor, or indeed, as many popes of this era did, uh, they took on a more papal name uh, when they ascended to the office. As far as I can tell, this was not a requirement amongst the patriarchs at Constantinople. Uh, men like Photius and Theophylact seem to have taken those names with them, uh, but many patriarchs came from the monastic world and monks did take on a spiritual name when they took their oaths. Michael Pselos, for example, was born Constantine. He only spent a short part of his life as an active monk, uh, against his will, uh, and yet the name Michael has stuck. But what about less illustrious company? How do we find the names of ordinary people? Um, again, if you look at the archaeology, we don't have graffiti on uh, city walls like at Pompeii or grave sites to examine in many cases. Uh, so one method of finding names is to turn to sigillography. In this case, the study of lead seals discovered at Byzantine sites. Now, I've talked about these before. These were the seals put on letters to indicate who they were for. And therefore, they give us a sample of the names of ordinary Byzantine officials and clergymen. So what do we find? In one fascinating study, the names are broken down by period. So we have one set from the 6th century up to the Arab invasions, and then one for the 7th to the 9th centuries, and then finally the 10th to the 12th. Across all six of those centuries, the same name tops the list each time and that name is John. Derived originally from the Hebrew Yahweh, and then famously carried by the Baptist and the Apostle, John has been a popular name ever since Christianity appeared, and in Greek it would be Ioannes. 
A quick scan of the podcast scripts revealed 25 different Johns, including John Chrysostom, John the Cappadocian, John the nephew of Vitalian, uh, the Grammarian, John Hexabulius, and of course, Corcuas and Zimisces. The second most popular name from the 6th to the 10th century was Theodore, uh, though through the 11th and 12th it drops to 5th in the charts, replaced at number 2 by Constantine. The number of names on the seals, uh, the variety of names, contracts as the centuries go by, reflecting the empire's loss of territory. By the end of Justinian's time, Latin names like Quadratus, Magnus, and Carinus disappear, and then, after the Arab conquests, Egyptian and Syrian names go too. As the empire becomes ever more centred on its Greek Orthodox core, the names chosen tend to be those of famous saints, Theodore being one, George and Nicholas others, depending on which saint was the protector of your local area. Constantine is in the top ten throughout the study, and you can see the influence of popular emperors as time passes. Theodosius and Anastasius are both in the top ten during Justinian's time, but disappear from the list thereafter. Similarly, Leo enters the charts post-717, and Basil, post the first and second. These are, of course, members of the upper classes. They are office holders. Uh, how can we find out if the average Joes were also given similar names? Again, we turn to a literary source, and this is one which I covered in the Byzantine story episodes covering Roman healthcare. If you're interested in exploring daily life in Byzantium, then I really recommend you check out those episodes. In them, we visit a church in Heraklion, Constantinople, where the tomb of St. Artemius was said to perform miracles. And when you find out what was really going on there, it really is a fascinating glimpse into how people lived their daily lives and dealt with, a, with common ailments. Uh, 1300 years ago. Anyway, the source for this hagiography seems to be the records of the church priests who wrote down the names of those who were miraculously healed by the saint. And as we discuss in that episode, the people being described were very likely real people who had injured themselves going about their business. And this gets us to the ordinary people. Shipbuilders, blacksmiths, bowmakers, stevedores, coppersmiths, sailors, wood dealers, servants, and even a granary security guard. And what names do we get? Here is the full list. Acacius, Andrew, Peter, Anthemos, Europus, George, Isiodor, Menas, Narses, Plato, Polychronios, Sergius, Stephen, Theodore, Theognios, Theotiknos, Zontos, Alexander. 
Three women are mentioned also. The uh, saint dealt almost exclusively in male complaints, but we also hear of a Euphemia, Sergia, and Sophia. So I think the answer is that the average Joes, with a little variation, shared the same names as the wealthy, as we do today. Of course, without spending weeks producing the Roman healthcare episodes, I wouldn't have uncovered that source, which is why these end-of-the-century episodes take so much longer to produce than the narrative. Anyway, enough of my excuses. Next time, we move from the happy day parents choose a name for their child to the sad day when the dead must be buried. Yes, we'll be looking at Byzantine funeral customs with a particular focus, as ever, on the resting place of emperors. <laughs> <laughs>